Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from all over the world in places like Charlestown, West Virginia, Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin, Medford, Oregon, Calgary, Alberta, Canada, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and Rockingham, Western Australia. Well, guess what? This week marks the second anniversary of Horsepower Heritage, and I've got to say it's been an incredible experience to create and produce the show. I don't have a production team or a big media company behind me. I do have a small and informal group of people who help in so many ways. But when it comes to researching stories or booking guests or recording and editing and even promoting the show, it's pretty much just me. I've always had a vision for where we're going. And, you know, I just told myself that if I work hard and I bring you quality stories and interesting guests that share the passion that we have for cars and motorcycles and the history of these machines that we love, that people would respond and we'd find our audience. And I think we have. And so many of you have taken the time to tell me how much you enjoy the show. Some of you have even said this is your favorite podcast. And, you know, it just makes my day when I hear this stuff. So thanks for all the kind words and I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And you keep doing what you're doing too, by the way, which is to spread the word about Horsepower Heritage. So tell your friends. And if you haven't done it yet, tap that follow button. Leave me five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps new listeners discover the show. And if you ever want to get in touch, just go to horsepowerheritage.com, hit the contact button there, and that'll take you where you want to go. And the show is really still a baby, but I'm excited about where we're going, and I'm grateful to each and every one of you. So keep listening. And today we're talking about what might be the most famous name in the history of the automobile, Rolls-Royce. And not just any Rolls-Royce, but the landmark Silver Ghost, which was made from 1906 to 1926. In those early days of the motor car, the Silver Ghost 4050 horsepower became the standard bearer for luxury, reliability, and sturdy construction, and it was the car that established the company's worldwide reputation. So naturally, they're cherished by their owners, and they tend to not change hands very often, and my guests today are a father and daughter team that drive their Rolls-Royce motor cars just as intended on long tours that continue to uphold that reputation over a century later. Alan Clendenin owns a 1914 Silver Ghost, and his daughter Ivy has a 1926 model. Alan's been collecting antique cars since the 1950s, and he's passed on that fascination to Ivy. So we sat down in Alan's garage to talk about their adventures, and the video version of this interview will be up on the YouTube channel, so don't forget to subscribe over there, and I think you'll be impressed by these massive machines. I know I was. Now, don't be fooled by how ornate they might look, because we went for a ride in Ivy's car, and it was just heaven to feel this thing pull effortlessly down the street, and I'm listening to that big six-cylinder tick along, and the straight-cut gears are singing, and the breeze is coming through the cabin, and it was just marvelous. But I'll let Alan and Ivy tell you more about it, and that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, stories of the famous Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, with Alan and Ivy Clendenin, right here on Horsepower Heritage. 
Well, Alan, thanks for having us in today. Wonderful garage, wonderful cars. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. It's always fun to share my interests with other people. It's a privilege. Uh, now, we're going to be talking about Rolls-Royce today, of course, uh, your Silver Ghost. But um, I'm curious where your car fascination started. started when I was about 10 years old, and I got a little plastic model of a 1914 Stutz Bearcat. And then I finished that one, and then I got another one. And pretty soon I had a whole collection of early cars. And then I started reading books on early cars, and there weren't very many in those days. And so my interest expanded from there. And then when I was 14, I used to ride my bicycle by a place that had some old cars, and there was a 1924 Rio sedan that sat in the driveway. One day I decided, I'm going to stop and see if that car's for sale. And I went and knocked on the door, and I looked like I was about 12 years old, even though I was 14. And the man said, well, yes, I'll sell the car. And so I bought it and went home and told my dad I needed him to drive a car home for me that I had just bought. And then it went downhill from there. And the next car was a 1917 Dodge. And, and uh, I started buying and selling early cars, trying to find an even earlier than one than what I had. Now, do you remember what you paid for those cars? Yes, I paid $50 for the Rio and $25 for the Dodge. Uh, this was in the 1956, and cars weren't worth a whole lot at that time. And did either of them run? Yes, they did. And well, that's, that's why I was able to have my dad drive them home, even though I wasn't old enough to drive. And, and uh, he, I suppose he took the news well that you had bought these cars? Well, it was a little bit of a surprise when I right. first told him that I'd bought the Rio. But he, he seemed to accept it all right. And the next Saturday, we went and got it, and he drove it home. And um, I started learning about cars. And I'm just an ignorant kid, I didn't know anything about them, except I knew the engine was in there, and the pistons went up and down, and a few other things. And so I... I began to learn a lot about cars after that hands-on experience. And you were always interested in the early cars as opposed to a lot of teenagers, you know, they, they want a hot rod or they want the latest and greatest, maybe a Corvette or something, but that wasn't for you. Well, I, most of my friends were into hot rods and I was interested in those too, but I think it was because I wanted something different from what the rest of the kids had. And that's why I kind of leaned towards early cars and... Having done the plastic models, that uh, inspired me to take a greater interest in that area. And right away, I joined the Horses Carriage Club, and at that time, that was the only car club around. And they all were into earlier cars, and the older, the better. And they toured a lot, and they did a lot of driving. And when, uh, when I got my driver's license, I had the Dodge, and I drove it to Horses Carriage events and became more and more active in it as time went on. Uh, and then I got some of my, my friends interested in it, and pretty soon there was a pretty good group of us young guys that were into early cars. So we expanded from there. And then as time went on, I wanted to get better cars. And then when I got out of high school, I bought a 1912 SGV, which was a launch it built under license here in the, the U.S. Interesting. Like a Lambda or uh, no, a pre-Lambda? No, before that, pre-Lambdas. Right. It was like the first model launches. And it was a high-quality car, and I didn't know much about them, but I learned. And it kind of expanded from there. Now, yeah. uh, are you surprised um, at the resurgence of interest in 
say, pre-World War I cars these days. I, I'm seeing a lot more interest, and I think it has to do, my theory, of course, I think it has to do with the fact that we're surrounded by high technology all the time, and we're really removed from the mechanical uh, stuff. And, and so I think people, when they see it, it it's, it's fascinating to them. Well, cars are simple. They're easy to understand in the real early cars. Where cars today, you, you raise the hood up and you look under there and you've got all of these shields and different electronic gadgets and you wonder, well, which piece is the engine? And the early cars, they're simple and easy to understand. And I, I think that people are looking for something that they don't have to concentrate on a whole lot. And of course, there's people that like all of that technology. But then there's people that are looking for a, an easier path to understand what's going on. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things that inspired me about Rolls-Royce. Um, when I was about 30 years old, I met a gentleman who had some early Rolls-Royces, and he introduced me to a woman whose husband had passed away and left her with four silver ghosts. And she was looking for somebody to kind of take care of the cars for. And by that time, I knew quite a bit about cars in general, and... She had a 1909 Rolls-Royce, a fairly early Silver Ghost. And I went, and I the car hadn't run in a while, and I checked everything out, and I thought, well, I can start this car. And it was a hand-crank car. It didn't have a starter on it. And it wasn't long, and I had the thing running, and then I decided, well, let's take it out and drive it around. And it was a great experience, and that really stimulated my interest in Rolls-Royce. Do you remember what year that was, by the way? That was 1972 or 73. I can't remember exactly. But. And what was a Silver Ghost worth at that point, do you think? Well, that car was probably worth about $10,000 at the time. Okay, so not a small not, sum of money in that year. No, but it wasn't a huge amount of money either. Right. I would say, well, a new Cadillac would have cost you about $5,500 then, I think. Probably. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, this car was probably worth more because it was such an early car. Right. And there weren't a whole lot of survivors of real early Silver Ghosts. Right. So you got into Rolls-Royce, and um, one, one thing that I like is that you really use your cars. They're, they're not garage queens. No. I enjoy driving cars. I'm not one to do a lot of restoration work, and I'm not big on going to car shows and standing around and letting people ooh and awe ah, what a gorgeous car it is and I, I already know that and I don't have to prove it to anybody but I do enjoy sitting behind the wheel and going down the road and looking at the scenery and um, just enjoying the feel of the car and the, the, the sounds that it makes and the way it handles on the road and that's what I really enjoy about it. Well, for people who don't really know the history of Rolls-Royce, maybe you could just give us a little thumbnail sketch of, of the early years of the company. Well, the company started off uh, a guy named Charles Rolls, whose family had quite a bit of money, and he was a sportsman, and he was into all kinds of cars, and he became a car dealer in England, and he imported cars from France, which were the superior cars at the time. And then somebody says, well, you need to meet a guy named Henry Royce. And they set up a meeting in Manchester, and the two got along fairly well. And Rolls was interested in seeing a car that 
Uh, Royce had built and they went to look at it and the car was very quiet and smooth and uh, Roll says, well, you know, I'd like to sell these cars. And so through a long chain of events, uh, they became partners and started the company Rolls-Royce. Now, Charles Rolls, uh, as I recall, he was a car dealer about 1895, 96. Started right? late 1890s. I'm not sure exactly what year it was right. when he first started. And and uh, Henry Royce's first car was the the 10 horsepower. The first car he built was a 10 horsepower right. two cylinder. Right. And then they re- soon came out with a four cylinder, which was the 20 horsepower Rolls. And that was a very popular car and. Charles Rolls uh, entered competitions with those cars and did very well with them because they were lightweight, uh, very reliable, uh, performed well, and won a number of different competitions. So the the quality and the reliability and the engineering was there from the start? Yes. Now, one of the sort of curious things about Rolls-Royce is that uh, they are named um, often by their horsepower, Yes, they were the twenty was the first four cylinder, and that was the one that became the the most common one. They didn't build a whole lot of two cylinder cars, which was the ten horsepower. And then in nineteen six, they came out with a thirty horsepower, and that was a six cylinder. And they didn't make very many of those, and they soon came out with the what they called the forty fifty. And late nineteen six and early nineteen seven. And that was the, the Silver Ghost, or what became the Silver Ghost. But it was known by the company as the 4050 horsepower. And it was 40 because they taxed the cars on horsepower, and that was their taxable horsepower. The 50 was supposedly the actual horsepower that the car put out. Although I think the, the size of the horses was, were pretty big compared to uh, what we consider today. Right, because it's deceptive. It doesn't sound like a lot in an era where we're used to 500 horsepower cars or, you know, you know, economy cars that can do 125 miles an hour. But um, it's really about the torque of these engines. Yes, the torque is where it's at. Because these cars will pull along a 5,000 pound car at about 200 RPM up about a 6 or 7% grade in high gear, which there's not many cars that'll do that. You take a modern car, it can't do that at all. Right. And smooth and uh, just effortless acceleration, right? And with the mechanical designs that they had at the time, they were very quiet. Right. And that was one of the things that made them popular was that they were quiet, smooth, and a lot of power. Uh, Tragically, uh, Rolls died very young and very early in the company's history. Yeah, he died in, I think it was 1910, in an airplane crash. In fact, I think he's credited with being one of the first aviation fatalities. Yeah, it was a right flyer, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was, yeah. yeah. And Henry Royce, uh, you know, he went on without Rolls. Um, but as I understand it, his health didn't really hold up. Not well. There was a man named Claude Johnson who was the general manager of the company, and he was, he sometimes referred to as the hyphen in Rolls-Royce. And he took the name and the company and pushed forward with it, entered all kinds of sporting events and reliability contests and 
really promoted Rolls-Royce to be the name that it became. And Henry Royce passed away in 1933. I think that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, now let's talk about your Silver Ghost. Okay. Um, Give us a rundown on this car. Okay. Well, this car was sold new to a man named uh, John Burns Fraser in Ottawa, Canada. And he was a prominent guy. He was involved in the lumber business. He was on the board of directors of the Grand Trunk Railroad. He was involved with another group of people that did uh, cross-country power transmission in Canada. Uh, and, And he did very well. And he ordered this car in, I think it was December of 1913, and took delivery on the chassis, I think it was in June of 1914. And they, they put this the body on it, which was built by a Connaught company in England. He had the car up and through the First World War. After the war, he sent it to the Rolls-Royce factory, which was opened after the war in Springfield, Massachusetts, and put an enclosed drive limousine body on it, which he had had on it, clear up into uh, the... 1990s and then it uh, was restored at that time and they built a copy of the original body which it has on it today and how long did he own the car he owned the car up through i think 1939 and he sold it to a friend and then that guy sold it to another friend he drove it in a couple of parades and then i had a friend in santa barbara that bought it and i think that was 1960 78, 79, something like that. And that was when I first saw the car. I thought it was a wonderful car, but never dreamed that someday I would own it. Right. And uh, then when that man passed away, it went to a member of parliament in England who was a prominent car guy. And his name was Alan Clark. And he's written a number of books on early cars. And he had it for about 10 years and he passed away. And then uh, a friend in Connecticut, Doug McGee, got the car, and he's one that had the car restored and the body built like the original and put it back the way you see it today. And Alan, as I, as I say, I, I love that you drive the car, um, and you don't just drive it around the block. You drive it thousands of miles. And you recently got back from one of the Rolls-Royce tours. That are, it's an annual event, is that yes. right? Yes, and one that they call it the Holy Ghost Tour. And... This year, my wife and I were the chair people on this tour, and we started in Moab, Utah, and we drove about 1,800 miles over 12 days through southern Utah to the Canyon de Chez in northern Arizona, Lake Powell, up through all the uh, national parks. We did six national parks and six national monuments and numerous state parks. Driving this car, and we had no mechanical difficulties whatsoever. We had 38 cars on the event. Uh, there was one car had a little bit of a dust in the carburetor problem, but with a, about 10, 15 minutes of fussing around, they've cleared that problem up. And then a couple of people had some tire issues. And other than that, we uh, it was a successful tour. And with the Silver Ghost group, uh, we generally don't have a trouble trailer. We have usually somebody that comes along with a more modern car or pickup or something to bring an extra can of gas, oil, uh, in this case, drinking water. Uh, so everybody was able to keep themselves hydrated as well as the car. 
And these are all pre-1927 cars? Yes. Okay. Silver Ghost was built from 1907 to 1926. And they made, uh, I think there's, if I remember right, there's about uh, 7,974 of them built. Not all of them in England. Right. Uh, there was about 1,900 of them built in Springfield, Massachusetts after the First World War. Right. Um, and the interesting thing about it is, is out of all the that almost 8,000 cars, they figure that there's somewhere around 20% still survive, which is an incredible survival rate. Absolutely. Considering uh, the age of these cars, and that they're almost all 100 years old or more. And when you consider... Uh how many cars were scrapped during World War II and after. Right, yeah. Well, there were a lot of Rolls Royces scrapped too, but an awful lot of them uh, from the 1920s were, especially old limousines, uh, were made into utility vehicles like uh, pickup trucks and uh, all kinds of different things like that because they were extremely reliable, durable engines. They just continued to run. I even remember seeing... Sometime in the 1950s, out in the San Fernando Valley, a man that had made a tractor, a wheel tractor, out of a silver ghost. And that was a surprise to see that. But I guess it was fairly successful. Yeah, there were all kinds of uh, strange home-built contraptions back in those days. And, of course, the doodle bugs. You know about the doodle bugs. The Ford Model Ts and Model As that were converted into tractors. So, um, now... With these cars, you're sort of at the mercy of the elements no matter what. True. Um, but how do, you, how do you cope with that? How do you manage that? Well, most of them are open cars, but not all of them. And, you, you know, if it's inclement weather, we have side curtains, which they came with when they were new. If, if the cars are set up the way they were in the, 19, in the teens and the 20s, uh, they're... they're they're very comfortable cars. They ride nice. They're quiet. They're smooth. In some ways, they're kind of like driving an old truck, but uh, that's part of the fun of, of driving them. And, and I was going to say the that's accomplishment part of, the... of doing almost two thousand miles in a hundred-year-old vehicle. That's there's a lot of satisfaction and joy in doing that. Yeah, I was going to say that's part of the charm is to kind of be exposed to your, the surroundings. Right. Um, whereas today we're so insulated and, and, and closed off from uh, the elements. Um, and uh, the, obviously the interior must be very comfortable. I mean, it, they're, they're basically a couple of Churchill sofas in yeah, there. Well, they are. They're very comfortable. And, uh, and with the top down, you get the feel of the scenery and of the element that in your surroundings and while you have the wind in your face a little bit and uh, you feel the road a little bit more uh, it's that's part of the charm of driving these cars especially in utah where the scenery is so spectacular absolutely we went on roads uh, a few places where they were dirt but you know these cars were designed to drive on dirt roads anyway and uh, they just go yeah, there wasn't much of a road system when this car was new. Not really, not by comparison to modern standards, that's for sure. How many miles do you think you've put on your car? Well, on this car, since we've owned it, we, I know I've put over 30,000 miles on it. That's fantastic. Now, you've passed on the, the Rolls-Royce bug to your daughter, Ivy. Yes. Was she on, on the tour with you? Yes, she was. 
fact, she uh, designed the tour book that we used and we passed out to all of our participants. So with the directions, a little bit of the history of the area, the geology, everything about it that she could think of, she put in the book. So uh, people were well informed of where they were and what they were doing. Terrific. Well, we're going to speak to Ivy in just a minute, but Alan, I want to thank you for uh, for sharing your memories of the car and uh, what it's like to own and drive and enjoy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Hi there, Ivy. Hi. Your car is beautiful too. Thank you. Tell us about it. It's a 1926 Pall Mall Tourer um, built in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, was Paul Mall the coach builder or was that the body style? That's the body style. Merrimack is the coach builder. Merrimack, okay. And so many coach builders, it's hard to keep track of them all. Yes, which actually makes the cars really interesting is that each car kind of has a unique take on it with the body styles. Yeah, it's interesting. And would it be right to call this car a Phaeton? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's an odd term. We don't... You know, people don't really know that, but you know, when you've got a a, a, a cowl between the front and rear seats, yes. that's basically a fan. Yes. Yeah. Are there any modifications? No. I mean, the car's all original, apart from the Optima battery that I run. It definitely Very battery technology has come a long way since the car was car yes. was built. Yes. You cannot have an original battery on this car, but do you have problems uh, keeping it charged or, or maintaining a charge? No, it works great. So you grew up around these cars. What was that like? I mean, it's not every, everyone gets that opportunity. I, I think that my earliest memory is sitting in the back of a car playing, but I think like the smell of the cars is like my strongest memory, which is actually a very fond smell to me now. Absolutely. There's, there's nothing like that smell of an old car. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of decay, mm-hmm. a, a little bit of sort of mellow age, I guess yeah, you'd say. Yeah, old I, leather, I love just it. oil and exhaust. Yeah, terrific. Um, they're, very, they're very sensory. Um, now, did you learn to drive on a normal car and then uh, on, a, on a... Yes, yes. I didn't, drive, I didn't first learn how to drive in an old car. Right. Um, I definitely learned on a modern car. Um, but I did learn how to drive Rolls Royces. In fact, that was really like my first attempt at like learning how to drive an older vehicle and, um, understanding how they work and operate and an intense experience getting behind a car of that size and weight and value to learn how to drive, but it actually was, they're really easy cars to drive. I mean, considering what um, the spectrum is. And so I, it didn't take too long. My dad was pretty good. I mean, he's such an incredible driver. He doesn't miss a shift. So it's really kind of difficult in some ways to drive with him because he is a flawless driver and he can get behind any car. And within a couple minutes, I mean, a car that most people would grind gears through, he could just easily shift. So there's like an intimidation factor in the way he explains things. It's so simple. And your dad's a patient guy, too. Yeah, he's very patient. Yeah. He's very patient. So somewhere down the line, you decided you wanted one of your own? Yes. Well, my dad offered me the opportunity. He was like, look, uh, I've come across this car. It actually wasn't this car. It was in 1923. 
um, Paul Mall, and it was going up for auction at this obscure op- auction that he came across that had no advertising. And he was like, I think this thing's just going to pop up and it's, and no one knows about it. And it's like, I think we should get this car. I think you should get this car because he knew that I was interested in the, I was beginning to get interested in the hobby. I still lived uh, back East, but I was um, starting to get more involved when they, there was a big event or a cool tour. And so he just thought it was a great opportunity. I jumped on it. It was an amazing car. And then um, we ended up selling that car. And then um, a widow contacted my father and was like, I have this car. I don't know if you're interested, but I need to get, you know, sell it. And he thought this was a great car because it had low mileage on it. I think it only had 32,000 original miles on this car. And then um, he thought this is a good opportunity. This is a great running vehicle. This is perfect for driving. And I think you should get it. So I got this car and this has been my car ever since for the last 10 or 12 years. What's the history on the car? So the history on the car, the only, I don't know all the hands that passed, but the original owner uh, had the last name Caperton and it was in Kentucky. And it was weird because my dad's like, well, I know a Caperton in Kentucky. Hmm. So he contacted his friend and was like, do you know anything about this vehicle? Did you have a relative that owned it? And he was like, my father owned that car. And I remember riding in it as a child. (laughs) So it was like a small world. Well, I think it's largely true of Rolls-Royce and other certain marks yes. that the the owner history is as interesting as the car That's itself. what makes it fascinating is, the, is who's owned these cars and where they've been because most of these cars are, are more well-traveled than the average person. Yes. <laughs> they've been all over the world. They've been in multiple hands and, you know, they've seen a lot. Right. And of course, let's not even get into the Maharajas. Oh, yeah. You know, and all of the Rolls Royce cars that, that they owned and the outlandish bodywork on yes. them. And, yes, yeah. which is a whole nother, yeah. Well, your car is clearly, um, I don't know if it's fair to say, a generation ahead of your father's. Yes. Um, uh, it's a much more modern looking car. Yes, and it's three speed and, you know, it's. It's pretty practical. I mean, you just get it into third and it, and it drives. Right. And it looks like your car would have had incandescent headlamps from the factory um, versus the, the carbide lamps that your dad's would have had. Yeah, I, I believe so. Alan, is that right? Rolls-Royce was one of the first companies to offer electric lights on a car. But the interesting thing about that is they didn't offer an electric starter until after the First World War, right. where most other cars had electric starters. Rolls-Royces were still hand-cranked. Interesting. Interesting. Cadillac was the, the first, electric right? Style, they, they claimed to be the first. They claimed to be the first. Yeah. There were others at the, about the same time. I see. It makes it a bonus that there's a starter, though, on this car, because yeah. I'm not a cranker. Even though it's, it looks a lot more modern than your father's car, do they drive largely the same? Or um, I'd have to say they definitely drive differently. And from what I've told, obviously, I haven't had you know the experience of driving every Silver Ghost, but um, each one kind of has its own personality, and they all kind of drive a little differently. My dad's car definitely actually feels more powerful, and um, it shifts smoother. Mm-hmm. 
the first car that I owned, that was a really, it was a gorgeous car. It had incredible brakes, which was nice. But that thing was so tricky to shift. And when I'd let somebody drive it, I was like, there's a little system to how you have to shift this thing. So tell us about that. Well, there's just like, you know, first is like you take your time into first, you jam it into second, and then you count to two and then you put it into three. So it's like there's like a weird little kind of quirkiness to it. But I'd imagine most cars kind of have a little bit of a character when it comes to driving them. And um, but I really enjoyed driving my dad's car as well. And the, and but my car is very comfortable. I mean, having the three speeds is nice. The way his is set up, um, his gearbox is really low. And of course, my size, I have to consider pillows and sitting up because, you know, I uh, sometimes can't reach the pedals <laughs> and there's no um, automatic, um, you know, seat. Right. There's support. no ad- adjustment. Yeah. That, yeah. So, um, so I have to consider pillows and stuff and um, it's just slightly off. It's just slightly too big for me. It's not every day you see a young woman driving an antique Rolls Royce. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you get lots of double takes? And um, I, I'd say so. I think the car kind of steals the show more than me. Right. <laughs> I think when I get out of the car, I definitely get some attention and people want to ask me questions and stuff. But yeah, I think the, the reality is, is that the car definitely precedes me as the driver. But um yeah, I definitely. I think it's a novelty for sure. Yeah, you guys tour with your cars. Um, yes, you must have some really great memories of that experience. Yeah, I mean, I, my whole life we've been touring and driving. And of course, you've heard that my dad is a driver, and so in turn, that's you know been passed along to me. And so I would say since moving closer to my parents, we've obviously, I've gotten more involved and I've helped them organize a couple tours. One of the tours that we first did was in Death Valley, which I just love Death Valley as a place to visit. I think it's gorgeous and I thought it would be a a wonderful place to take the cars because it's just big open roads and you know, beautiful scenery. And so helping organize that, it, uh, you know, gets you into all the intricacies of planning where to go. And I think once you actually accomplish the tour and you're on it, driving it with other people, enjoying it, it's a good experience. And it, it's definitely very satisfying. And I enjoy driving the cars on these tours because it's like, I feel like it's another dimension you're experiencing in your environment. And Definitely scouting out a place for a tour in a modern car and then taking your roles on the tour. It's a completely different experience. And it always kind of shocks me, like what a transition it is to be in a modern car and then you're driving in that. And it's like you're experiencing like tenfold what you, you know, would in a modern car. And I, it's, it's just like I was talking about with your dad. In a modern car, you're isolated from the elements and in, in these you... Smell, feel, hear, everything. Yes, I definitely think it's a full sensory experience. And I mean, I think it's also really great how you share those experiences with other people by creating a tour. And you know, the other thing too is uh, a lot of people are sort of afraid to drive an old car any great distance. Yeah. And I think that's such a shame because I drive my old cars basically as if they were daily drivers you know mm-hmm. nothing special really i, I i'll do a, a you know 500 miles a day in them 
and they're capable of doing it. That's what they were built to do. Yes. And I think the thing is, is that's like a mental hurdle some people have to get over. For sure. And it's definitely like a school of thought, you know, it's like the drivers and the diaper wipers, you know, it's like (laughs) somebody just gently polishing their car. And I think that there's just a part of it where it's like it was meant to drive, especially Rolls Royce. I think the more you drive it, the healthier the car is. And I feel like being too cautious, it, 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 uh, it turns it into something else. And I think it's a vehicle and it's meant to be used. Definitely. So you were the organizer on the last tour, which is called Trail of the Hoodoos? Yes. My mom came up with that name, but that was a tour of Utah and Arizona, which I kind of just generalize as the Colorado Plateau, which is a geological formation that covers all the areas that we toured. And the Trail of the Hoodoos, it's a rock formation, uh, basically kind of like pinnacles. So when um, a mesa starts to erode, um, you get the, the layers, the strata, and the top layer tends to be a very hard rock. So everything else erodes around it and then keeps this perfectly standing pillar. And they're all over the Colorado Plateau. So we thought it was kind of like every place we would go to, there would be hoodoos. You know, what it sounds to me like is the title of a Tintin story. Yeah, I think there's a little fantastical adventure kind of approach to it. Yeah, I love it. Um, Organizing the event. um, It's a big job. You want, want, number one, your route to be really fantastic. You want everyone's needs to be provided for. Yes. And we're jumping from location to location. So it's not like a hub tour where we're staying, staying in one location and then just going out each day on a different route. It's like we're going from location to location to location. So it becomes logistically difficult because you have to anticipate that things are going to go wrong at the next location. And you won't discover those until you arrive with everybody else. Right. So it's a little nerve wracking, but, and it was great. It was a, a big distance. We went over 16,000, 1600 miles. So, I mean, it's a, it's a great distance and you want to make sure everyone's comfortable and feeling good. And of course we like to drive. We also like to take more challenging routes mm-hmm. because we have a little bit of an adventurous side to us. And so we did feel nervous because some people are uncomfortable going on a dirt road or taking a steep grade or a bunch of hairpins or, you know, any kind of, you know, variation of road conditions. So we try to be conscious of it, but we want to give people an experience too. Yeah. And so the only way to do it is kind of push, push people to, you know, do something maybe they wouldn't be comfortable with. But this tour was complicated because I'd never been to these locations. So the first tour I planned with my parents, I was very familiar with everything that we were doing and where we were going. This was complicated because this was a long tour and I didn't know a lot of the area. But part of my experience in touring is that when you're driving, you want to understand where you're driving through too. not just you're in your car and you're, you know, just focused on the road. So you want to focus on the area you're in and what you're driving through and, you know, the history and where did this road even come from too? I mean, it's just the, so I like to layer it with information through the directions as well and give people some kind of, you know, insight into where they are and who was here before them and any kind of geological, you know. You know, the other cool thing is that a lot of these uh, early roads in the Western U.S., there's lots of archival photography 
uh, documenting those roads in the teens and 20s and, you know, cars like Model T's on them. Yeah. So must be neat to... I'm, you've probably seen some of those photos. Yeah, I mean, when we did the... it was It's interesting. I think because some of the places we went in Utah were pretty remote, there wasn't a lot of options of photography. But in Death Valley, it was such a novelty in the 20s and teens to go to Death Valley. So there's really fabulous photos of older cars. And, and actually, I mean, there's a great story associated with a silver ghost um, that was on our tour in Death Valley, and it was a um, prospector who ended up scheming and swindling people out of millions of dollars and investing in these mines. And he had a Rolls Royce that he drove while he was um, set up in Death Valley, and that Rolls Royce was on that tour. Wow, that is cool. cool. Very cool. Ivy, thanks for coming on the show and having me in. And Alan, who's sitting there off camera, appreciate Uh, your hospitality today. My pleasure. Yeah, it was great having you. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage and you can support the show over there and tell your friends, write a review. All of those things help me reach more gearheads like you. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, August 10th for more of the people and the stories behind the machines. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.